We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew this morning, and so we are in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to grab one of these from in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, this is yours to keep. This is uh, the Bible that we'll be studying out of today, and you will find our passage on page 814. And our sermon text will actually begin in verse 14 of chapter 9, but we're going to go back a couple of verses just to give ourselves the setting. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 and following. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin our time of study and prayer. Father, as we sang, we long for Christ's return. We we long for the day when we don't struggle against sin anymore. When we see Jesus face to face and he's here with us. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that as we look to your word this morning, you would cause us to look forward to that day more. And that more than anything, that day would be our hope. That in Jesus Christ, now we would hope for his return. And that our lives would look different because of that hope that we have. Lord, change us by your word. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on April 14th of this year, the week before Easter, we were in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you remember that? And in that passage, Jesus instructs his disciples on how to fast. Jesus told them not to draw attention to themselves, not to make a a big deal out of self-denial. They were to fast secretly. Their fasting was to be a, a, a quiet matter of humility before their Heavenly Father. I didn't really remember what I preached when I went through that passage, so I had to go back and read my notes again. And, and, and as I read my notes, it all started coming back to me. There were a few things that we looked at when we looked at that passage in Matthew 6. One of those things was that fasting was expected of Christians. Remember Jesus said, 
when you fast, not if you fast. He said, when you fast. And then we studied how the early church fasted, how whenever some major decision was being made in the church in the book of Acts, especially decisions like who to appoint as a pastor, the leaders would pray and fast. You might remember that this was just a few weeks before we called Pastor Saunders as our pastor of discipleship. And then I asked you to consider fasting as we sought the Lord's wisdom in that decision. Many of us prayed, some of us fasted, and I believe the Lord answered our prayers. The second thing we saw, though, when we studied that passage was that, that fasting was meant to help us deny the flesh. It's a way of disciplining ourselves to deny worldly desires. When our belly tells us that we're going to die if we don't have lunch, fasting reminds us we can actually control our bellies. And then we can also control more than that. We can control where our eyes go. And we can control our negative thoughts. And we can control what we say. Fasting is a a discipline given to us by God to train us in godliness, particularly in the area of self-control. Lastly, we saw that, that fasting was meant to help us remember that the world, as good as it is, is not as good as what awaits us in heaven. We're looking forward together. We're looking forward to being in the presence of God. And all of the blessings that, that come with that. And fasting just says this. It says, I'm looking forward to that more than I'm looking forward to my next meal. Well, if that was the title of that sermon was Fasting 101. If that was Fasting 101 today, we're just Fasting 201. All right, so this is the second passage in Matthew that deals with this subject. There's not much in the Bible that deals with this subject So this is kind of an advanced lesson on fasting. And we're going to focus this morning a little bit more on that last section that we just talked about. The forward-looking aspect of fasting. Because that last case in favor of fasting is what Jesus is drawing our attention to in this morning's text. So after the ascension of Jesus, that is, after he lived and died, and was resurrected, and then ascended into heaven, we are now waiting on his return. And and we're to look forward to the things of the Lord and to the return of Christ more longingly than we look forward to anything else. that's, That's the Christian life. That's the hope that we have. And fasting is just one of the ways that we train ourselves in that area. First, though, before we get to that main point of the text, there's this little situation that we have to iron out between chapter 6 and chapter 9, all right? But back in chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was teaching his disciples how to fast. Remember he said in, in verse 16, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, but when you fast, anoint your head with with oil and wash your face. So if we didn't have chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, we kind of expect that the disciples in Jesus' day were at least occasionally fasting, right? Because Jesus said, when you fast, this is how you're to do it. But, But... 
Here in chapter 9, it's pretty clear that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Look at verse 14 from this morning's passage. And I, and I want to remind you of the setting here. Jesus and the disciples are still at Matthew, the tax collector's house, or the former tax collector's house, and they're eating together. And the question you're about to see is a follow-up to the question that the Pharisees asked last week. It was really, it's the same day, it's the same hour. It's really important for you to see, though, that, that Jesus is at the table. He's eating with the disciples, and he's eating with these forgiven sinners, and they're all feasting with Jesus. All right? So then verse 14 comes. Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist's disciples, they came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, now it's possible that the reason they came to, to Jesus and his disciples on this day is because it was a Monday or a Thursday. And on Mondays and Thursdays of every week, the Pharisees fasted. And so did John's disciples. And so it's possible that Jesus is eating with these forgiven sinners and his disciples on a Monday or a Thursday. And these, the, the hungry disciples of John come in and they see Jesus, the one that John promised was coming, and he's eating. And they're a little bit disturbed because they're already a little bit hangry, right? And, and so they're, they're frustrated, possibly. This is just speculation, 100% speculation. But it's possible and so they're asking Jesus and these disciples, why do we have to fast and you don't? And how does Jesus respond? Well, before we look at Jesus' response, if we are following the logic from chapter 6, what would we guess Jesus' response would be? We would expect that he would say something like this, actually, my disciples and I do fast, but we do it secretly and not on Mondays and Thursdays. But, but he doesn't say that. Jesus actually acknowledges that his disciples are not fasting, and in fact, they're doing the opposite. They're partying. If you read Luke's gospel, he says they're eating and drinking, and they don't mean water. In, in verse 15 of our passage, Jesus compares what his disciples are doing to a wedding party. So everyone else is fasting, and Jesus and his disciples and these forgiven sinners that are with him, they're, they're having this... It's, it's comparable to a wedding party. They're not fasting, they're feasting. And then look at verse 15. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The, the disciples that Jesus taught how to fast aren't fasting, at least not yet, and neither are the other people that Jesus is calling to himself, and they can't because Jesus says the bridegroom is with them. And just like that, in much the same way that we've seen in the rest of Matthew's gospel, Jesus of Nazareth reveals more about who he is. He's the bridegroom, he says. And this meal Jesus is having with these disciples and these forgiven sinners is like one of the meals during the week leading up to a wedding feast. It's a meal looking forward to the major celebration, the big meal, the wedding day meal. I don't want you to miss this. For, for, for Jesus to identify himself as the bridegroom is perhaps one of the most powerful ways that Jesus can possibly express his divinity. 
Think of that passage that Sarah read for us earlier from Hosea. In Hosea 2.16, Hosea says that there will come a day when the Lord restores his relationship with his people. He's going to make a new covenant, a new promise. A, a, a covenant in, in many ways is like a marriage vow. Verse 16, and in that day declares the Lord, you, he's talking to Israel, he's talking to his people, you will call me my husband. That's how they will speak of the Lord. They'll call him my husband, not my Baal. Baal is just another name for the, for the idols. They, they will know the Lord as their husband. Hosea is saying the Lord is going to remove the idolatry from his people and they'll be, they'll be bound, covenanted, married to God alone. He'll be their husband and he's bringing a new covenant. The, the Lord God is the husband, the bridegroom. And in Matthew, Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. He say, that's me. The bridegroom's coming in the Old Testament always carried with it this sense, this expectation of a new covenant, a a new relationship between God and his people, one where their sins are forgiven and one where God's law is written on their hearts. It's It's a covenant that can't be broken. In Isaiah 61 and 62, we see the the promise of the year of the Lord's favor. So when the Lord proclaims liberty to the captives and freedom to those in bondage, if you read Isaiah 61, Isaiah also says he comforts those who mourn. Remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Isaiah 61 is saying that would happen The Lord would comfort those who mourn. He brings the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Joy will replace shame. Justice will replace wrong. And again, the Lord says he will make an everlasting covenant with his people. The Lord will bring righteousness and praise before the nations. And then he says this, like a bridegroom who has clothed himself for the wedding. In Isaiah 62, 5, he says it again. This is sort of the the climax of this prophetic poem. The Lord rejoices over his bride. He rejoices over his bride's redemption like a bridegroom. If you keep going, you see more of these prophecies in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord is Israel's husband. And he's bringing the new covenant, this marriage renewal. The the Lord is the bridegroom, and when he comes, there would be rejoicing because he's bringing the new covenant. And and Jesus, here in our passage this morning, is saying, I'm here. I'm the Lord God, and I have brought the new covenant. I'm the bridegroom. He's saying a new time has come. The new covenant has arrived with the bridegroom. The new way that God's people will relate to God is here. And Jesus, the bridegroom, God himself is ushering it in. He's fulfilling the law and the prophets. Nothing will ever be the same again. That's, what he's, that's the entire point of what he's getting at here. Nothing will ever be the same again. Judaism as the, the, the way that, that John the Baptist's disciples knew it has been fulfilled in Christ. Judaism, the way that the Pharisees knew it, has been fulfilled in Christ. The way that everything had been practiced is now over. The old ways aren't how God's people will relate to him anymore. 
So as you keep going through the New Testament, you see these things unfolding. That the festivals and the holy days will be done with because Jesus fulfills them. The temple will never, ever be of any use again because Jesus is God with us and he will send his spirit to the church. And that's how he'll be present. The the food laws are done with because in Christ, there will no longer be a distinction between Israel and the nations. Circumcision as the mark of God's covenant people will be replaced by the Holy Spirit's creating in us a new heart. Everything is changing. Everything is changing with this ushering in of the new covenant that has been inaugurated by the coming of the bridegroom, by the coming of Christ. And that's why Jesus talks the way he does. That's why he uses these metaphors. Look at verse 16. He says, Nobody puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on that old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. This, this new covenant... This unshrunk cloth, the patch that fixes all that is broken in Israel, you can't just add it on to the old way of doing things. You can't just add it to the old garment. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus. If you try to add this new covenant to the old garment, everything just gets worse. The old garment must be replaced. The shadow must be replaced by the substance. Jesus uses another metaphor in verse 17. He says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. Again, the new has come. It's, It's just beginning though. The new kingdom, the new wine has been initiated or inaugurated, but it's not complete. It's not finished fermenting. It hasn't fermented all the way, so it's still bubbling. The yeast is still working its way through the grape juice, converting sugar into alcohol and CO2 and and building up pressure. A fermenting liquid like this, I don't know if you've seen wine ferment before, it's it's violent. And, And so to contain it, you need a fresh new skin, one that's durable and stretchable. We don't use skins anymore. We use glass or barrels or stainless steel. But in those days, they, all they had was an animal skin. And, and so they, they would ferment in, in the animal skins. And a young goat skin would be sort of sewed up together into a bag that would hold the liquid. If you can kind of picture it. It's old and stretched. And the new wine is still fermenting. Then it bursts because there's, there's no more give in that skin. And so it's ruined and the wine is ruined. But Jesus is saying the bridegroom has come. He's here. The new covenant kingdom has been inaugurated. And the groom is bringing with him forgiveness of sins as the bride price. And so Jesus is telling these followers of John the Baptist. He says the one that your teacher told you was coming is here. And it's me. He's me. (laughs) And I and my disciples are right to celebrate. And you should be celebrating too. This is no time for fasting. The bridegroom is here. See now who Jesus is? Just with that one word, bridegroom. It's a massive, massively 
pregnant word when it comes to Scripture. Jesus has packed a lot into that. Church, listen to this. Jesus' love for you. This is what we need to to take away from this. Jesus' love for you is as a husband loves his wife. Or, Or rather, instead of saying it that way, we should say, no husband can possibly love his wife the way that Jesus Christ loves his church. His bride. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that Jesus Christ gave him he gave himself up for his church to sanctify her, to, to make her righteous, so that he might present himself to her or to herself to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He died for us, he nourishes us, he cherishes us. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. But the switch is this, that the wedding hasn't happened yet. Look back at verse 15. Jesus says, There is a day coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. So, so before that big day, before the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the, the bridegroom is away for a while. And so the people to, that are left... As they anticipate his return, they fast. I want to ask you a question. That's how I understand the passage, but let me ask you this. Is Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, present with us the same way that he was present with those disciples? Or is he gone? Because if he's with us in the same way, then we should not fast. But if he isn't with us in the same way, then we should fast. Because Jesus said when the bridegroom is taken away, then his disciples will fast. So which is it? Well, in one sense, he is present with us. He promises he will be with us. Always. The last thing he says in Matthew, the last thing that Matthew records for us, at the very end, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But what we need to understand as you continue to read the New Testament, we see that that presence isn't physical, it's spiritual. Jesus will ascend into heaven and send his spirit. Jesus' presence then is spiritual. And the Holy Spirit is with us, and God really is present with us in the spirit. It's not like a consolation prize. The Spirit's presence is to be celebrated. We are to worship the Spirit the same way that we worship the Father and the Son because the Spirit is fully God. We're a Trinitarian church. But as Peter said, Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. So, So the bridegroom has ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. He's not here in the same physical sense as he was with his disciples. The kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. The kingdom is coming. We look forward to it. We long for it. But right now, things are not as they will be. Paul says in Philippians 1.23 that to be with Christ he has to depart from this life. Right? So to be present with Christ in the same way that those disciples at that pre-wedding feast were with Christ, now you have to depart from this life to do that. 
So if the bridegroom is gone then, if he's been taken up, then Jesus said his people would fast. Fasting, as Jesus has taught us, is an appropriate way to await the return of Christ. If for no no other reason than this, Jesus simply said his people would do it. It's not a command, but it's an expectation. And, And I don't know about you, but I think it's a good idea to be doing the things that Jesus expects of us. Those who are truly longing for the return of Christ are expected to show that longing through fasting. It's one of the ways that we show that longing. It's a physical expression of our faith. Our looking forward with hope to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the return of the bridegroom. It's a way of saying that what I have right now is not that. And that is greater. The hope I have in Christ is greater than all of the good that I have right now. What we have now is good. Right? This is not a denial of all good things. What we have now is good. It's a gift to have plenty of food. It's a gift to have family and friends and to have a church to belong to. Our Fourth of July cookouts and our Christmas dinners and our Thanksgiving feasts and our weddings and our birthdays and our feasts just for the sake of feasting. Those are good things. They're good. Do those things. You can have joy in Christ in this life, but we have to remember those things are not as good as what we will have with Christ when He returns. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that what Christ has in store for us is better than this life? Or do you secretly believe that it might all be a farce? And so you're trying to make the most out of this life just in case that whole Jesus business is a sham. Are you playing the Christian game baptism and communion and going to church and all this religious stuff just in case Christianity is true but really your life is pretty good and if we just die and decompose and that's the end of it you're going to milk every last drop out of this life that you can YOLO but Jesus just in case right What Jesus is teaching us here is that if we are truly awaiting Christ's return, if we really believe he will return, if we really believe that one day we'll be in his presence, then fasting is one of the ways that we physically remind ourselves of that truth. So we're to enjoy our feasts, We're to celebrate with thanksgiving the forgiveness we have in Christ, the blessings that God has given us. We can eat and drink in joy and in celebration. That's good. Gladness is good. Joy is good. Celebration is good. It's God-given. He's given it to you to enjoy because he's your father and he's good and he takes care of you. But we are also to occasionally set aside time to deliberately look forward to Christ's return, not through feasting, but through fasting. Fasting says, I really like food. 
I really like food, but not as much as I am longing for the kingdom. We can follow the example of the early church in this. This, what I'm teaching here is not new. The idea of not fasting, that's new. Totally new and totally foreign to what the church has known throughout the ages. So if we follow the example of the early church, we saw that the early church, was see- whenever they were seeking the Lord, they prayed and they fasted. And the Spirit called Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries in that time. And when those missionaries planted churches and then appointed elders in those churches, they first sought the Lord through prayer and fasting. Doing that as a way of saying, Lord, you have given us good gifts and you've given us wisdom, but we want you. Lord, we want you, so we're seeking your will. After the time of the apostles, so after the the Bible was complete, when the early church was met with persecution, as Jesus had promised they would be, you know what they did? They prayed and they fasted for their persecutors. When the early church was seeking the salvation of a loved one, they prayed and they fasted to seek the salvation of that loved one. When they were seeking the salvation of the Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they prayed and they fasted. Things, they, they knew this. They knew that things were not yet as they would be. And so they, they fasted because they recognized that reality. They longed to see God's kingdom come. They were waiting for the bridegroom, acknowledging that, that though much had been accomplished, A lot has been accomplished. Christ has forgiven us at Calvary. But Jesus wasn't present with them in his glorified body, bringing with him the kingdom. That that wedding supper, that big feast when Christ is joined to his church, that hasn't happened yet. That's revelation. That's time to come. And today, 2,000 years later, it still hasn't happened. Christ still has not returned. So why aren't we fasting? Collectively, as Christians, we've forgotten that fasting is a posture of dependence on God, longing to be in his presence. It's saying to God, I want to see your will be done more than I want food. I want to see the salvation of my son or my daughter more than I want a sandwich. God, I want to see you work in my church or in our community more than I want a bowl of cereal. Lord, I want to see your kingdom here on earth more than I want Burger King. Fasting is an outworking of faith. It's showing God that we want his will more than we want to have our bellies filled. Fasting is not proving anything to God. I don't want, to, I don't want you to mistake this. It doesn't somehow give you greater standing before God. When, when we talked about this last time, I said it's not that you're calling him on the red phone, right? It, it, this is not a time where you get a special access to God because you're fasting. You're not proving anything to him. It doesn't make you any more righteous. If you're in Christ, you've been made as righteous as you will ever be before God. You cannot improve on that standing. What Christ has given you is unbeatable. You can't add to it. Fasting doesn't prove anything to God. Fasting is worshiping God. It's seeking Him, longing to be in His presence and His will more than your most basic fleshly longing. 
So why don't we do it? This way of worshiping has always been known to the church. But in the last hundred years or so, which is very recent, we've, we've gotten away from it. We know that the early church fasted. We saw it in Acts. We know that the church after the apostles fasted because we see it in their writings in the early 200s. We know that the, the early church fathers fasted too. In the 300s AD, ba- Basil or Basil of Caesarea said that our fasting is to be joyfully looking forward to our feasting with Jesus. Feasting through fasting. We're joyfully looking forward. In the 400s, Augustine, if you know him, he said fasting is breathing with desire and burning with love for our one country. And by that he means Christ's kingdom. We're burning with love for Christ's kingdom. The early Baptists, you think this isn't a Baptist thing to do, it's a very Baptist thing to do. The early Baptists said that fasting was humbling ourselves before God and it should be observed as an act of worship. So if you look in the, in the old Baptist confession from the 1600s, and you look under the heading worship, under section 5, you will see how and why we are to fast. This is a very Baptist thing to do, because it's a very Christian thing to do. In the 1700s, shortly before the church in New England was awakened with revival by the Holy Spirit, Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, he had been seeking God through prayer and fasting. Let me read for you an excerpt from a biography. For three days, Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over again, he had been saying to God, Give me New England. Give me New England. And when he arose from his knees and made his way into the pulpit, they say that he looked as if he had been gazing straight in the face of God. They say that before he opened his lips to speak, Conviction fell upon his audience. The English preacher John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, he would not ordain a minister to office if that man did not fast twice a week. It's not biblical, but it wasn't questioned because fasting was a normal part of evangelical life. Throughout the history of the church, Fasting has been one of the ways that Christians show their dependence on God. But somehow it's, it's just fallen out of fashion, hasn't it? If evangelical churches made fasting a requirement for pastors, there would be a lot of pastorless churches, including this one. That was not on the requirements for the pastor search team for me or when we were looking for our discipleship pastor either. It would be really hard to find a pastor like that. And if we're looking as a church, if we're looking to see more people come to church and to be saved, do we fast and pray and seek God to awaken our community with a revival the way that Edwards did? It's not likely, is it? We're more likely to have a planning meeting over a potluck. And the ideas that we would come up for getting people to come would have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Our ideas would more likely involve food and fun instead. And we wonder why the church in America is shrinking. Why don't we fast? 
Why don't we show a dependence on the Lord? If we truly say that the Lord is sovereign in salvation, if the Lord is sovereign in our church, why don't we show that type of dependence on him? Why don't we show a hoping for Christ the way that Christ expected of us? I I think simple enough, and I can just say this from my own experience, we just weren't taught We weren't taught that this was expected of Christians. I wasn't. Out of all the dozens and dozens and dozens of books that I had to read in seminary, there was one book that was about this thick and one chapter about 15 pages long on fasting as a spiritual discipline. I think growing up, and I grew up in the church, the only time I heard about fasting was in youth group, and it was to identify with the hungry people in Africa. It wasn't spiritual. We weren't praying. It was just, we just wanted to see what it felt like to be hungry. It was a fundraiser. But friends, Jesus said that his people would be fasting. Not might be. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. We're to be longing for his return. Longing for his kingdom. Longing for his will to be done on earth and expressing that longing through occasional fasting. This morning I want to challenge you. That's all this is. It's just a challenge this morning. This is what Jesus said. We preach from the word. We don't skip passages. And so when we get to a passage like this, we're challenged, aren't we? I'm challenged. I want to challenge you to join me in making this discipline that Jesus expected of us a part of your walk with Christ. I'm speaking specifically to Christians this morning. If you're not a Christian, fasting won't make you a Christian. Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. But once we're in Christ, when we're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we begin to long for Him. And in that longing for Christ, we respond physically. It's not all in our heads. The Christian life is physical and spiritual. And so we long spiritually and we long physically through fasting. So I want to challenge you to add this to the disciplines of Scripture reading and gathering with other Christians and participating in the Lord's Supper these are, these are means of grace. But, but I want to say this too. Don't just do it to do it. All right? So if you're not a Christian, don't do it at all. If you are a Christian, don't just fast just to not eat. All right? Just like eating bread and drinking wine at home isn't always communion. Don't just diet. Okay? Because you'll end up miserable and hungry. Fast purposefully. Plan ahead and do it in a way that is worshipful and, as Jesus says, a way that is private and a way that will not inconvenience others. Don't draw attention to yourself through this. Don't tell me that you're doing it. Don't tell others that you're doing it. Do it in a way that doesn't inconvenience them. By purposeful fasting, this is what I mean. I mean, if you have regularly, and I hope you have, I hope you've regularly been praying for a loved one who has rejected the gospel. If if you're doing that, add fasting to your prayers. 
As a church, we're hoping to step up our outreach into our own community. So let's fast and pray in that effort. If it's missions to unreached people groups or missionaries in dangerous places, or if it's campus outreach, if it's our neighborhood that we're praying for, whatever burden you have to see the Spirit move and to see the gospel prove effective, fast and pray longingly. If you're struggling against sin in your own life, especially if it's a self-control issue, let fasting be a part of that struggle. If your relationship with the Lord has grown cold, let fasting be a part of your prayerful return to Christ. This is, this is how you do it. All right? Start this way. Just skip breakfast and lunch for one day. So your, your fast is just dinner from one night to dinner the next night. So skip breakfast and lunch one day. And when you, when you feel those hunger pangs, because you will, remember that you're fasting intentionally and let those, those hunger pangs be a reminder to pray for what it is that God has burdened you with. Whatever longing for the Lord you're burdened with. If, if a food fast would not be medically wise for you, and for, for many of you, I'm sure that's the case, fast from a TV show. Right? If there's a show you look forward to every week, one that pains you to miss, miss it on purpose and pray instead, and don't go back and watch the rerun. You can't go back and, and catch up on a meal, so that's not fair. You, skip it altogether. Pray instead. If there is a website or an app that you use as a part of your regular daily routine, take an intentional break from it. And whenever you think, oh, I need to look at Facebook or I need to look at Instagram right now and that impulse comes upon you, pray instead. Pray instead. Seek the kingdom. Long for Christ's return. It's It's better. He's greater. Friends, that's what the Christian life is. Faith that Christ has redeemed us, hope for eternity with Him, and loving what He loves. You see how that works? We have faith that He's redeemed us, we have hope that He'll return and that we will spend eternity with Him. And we love what he loves. That means we love other Christians. And we love the lost. And so we long to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for that physically and spiritually. So let's worship him in that way. Let's worship him as we wait. There is more real joy to be found in the Christian life than most of us are experiencing. There is a greater confidence to be had in Christ than most of us know right now. Let's worship him fully and hold nothing back. Amen? Let's pray.